1: Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and by Tony Hodson from the Coach's Voice platform. I've been to see Unai Emery, who symbolises Aston Villa's ambition. The League Cup final, meanwhile symbolises the changing face of modern football. Newcastle, of course, are under Samby ownership. Manchester United could well come under Qatari control. So, John, will the season's first showpiece
2: occasion be a taste of things to come? Yes, without a shadow of a doubt, it really feels like that. It feels like a, a moment in time and... I was at Anfield on, on on Tuesday night, and I must say there's been there was so much talk amongst people that were there about you know what happens next to Manchester United. Is it inevitability that it will fall under Qatari ownership? There's so much sort of in the, in the media about it. It really is, and then also just where Newcastle are, and I feel that they will get stronger. We're, we should praise. We can't you know can't escape the praise that is belonging to Eddie Howe and the job that he's done but you do feel don't you that there's there's going to be a monster growing there at st james's park it's going to get stronger and stronger and the world really is is their oyster they've got the world at their feet they've got so much possibility and so much excitement we shouldn't also escape that i think it's a great showpiece final and proves to everyone that the Carabao cup means something it's a it's a big weekend for the afl because it's, it's a hugely significant trophy and first final for Eric Ten Haag. I think it's also a hugely significant moment for, for Newcastle. But I do think it also offers as something a snapshot into something else as well, and the growing influence there between the state ownership and what might lie ahead for, for English football, frankly.
1: Yeah, well, you know, as often, we'll get to the football a bit later. Tony, United by common consent, of the biggest brand in world football, one of its most storied clubs. Obvious implications there if it comes under effective state control. Is that a bad thing for the game or is it just the new reality?
3: You could argue it, it could be both, Mike, really. I mean, think the, the first thing to say, which I think is, is worth pointing out, that Sheikh, Jassim and those around him insist... His ownership does not represent state control. Well, that doesn't mean you have to you have to believe them. The official line is that the purchase would be completed by his own foundation, funded by his own money. Although I think if you just, it only needs a quick glance at some of the kind of excellent reporting done by a number of journalists and outlets in recent weeks, including including John, lead to the fact that Justin's father, who's kind of known as HBJ by those who presumably can't be bothered to look up his actual name, is one of the one of the richest and most powerful men in Qatar with, with decades of, of very close proximity to the royal family. So if the state doesn't officially own the club, it certainly isn't very far away. I mean, defenders of the purchase would probably point to the fact that football is and has been for a long time a kind of pretty ugly, unfair landscape riddled with inequality. Where the money comes from to assert that inequality is largely irrelevant. But United, as you say, is a huge brand, a flagship brand in football, a historic club. Many of their fans would say has already been kind of horribly tainted and largely left to rot by almost two decades of kind of wasteful American ownership. And that the Glazers have done absolutely nothing to engage with the support or the fan base or the local communities around them. How is that worse, I might ask, than a private individual willing to rid the club of its debt and invest in a way similar to the owners of Abu Dhabi have done across the way with Manchester City? I mean, you could argue this all day and an argument that would never be resolved, I don't think. But um, as John kind of said in his first answer, I think we are looking at what is a new reality.
1: Yeah, well, certainly me yeah, Professor Simon Chadwick, uh, you know, a friend of the show, stresses the absolute level of state control in Qatar. And we saw that in the World Cup, didn't we, John? Obviously, you know, part of the equation is, is potential conflict of interest. The Qataris own PSG, and lest we forget, Nice are owned by Sir Jim Ratcliffe and and Ineos, who are the other bidders for United. Does it all point to the fact that football's regulations are just outdated?
2: Yeah, it's they, they are really blurred lines, aren't they? Because I just feel as if there's going to be obvious conflicts of interest there, and it doesn't feel as if football, and football's governing bodies are jumping up and down about it. I think it almost feels as if we're heading to towards a compromise, some sort of, you know, easy truce. A few years back, Chelsea had relationships with so many clubs, and we reached a point in time, didn't we, under the Abramovich era, where there was unease because, you know, clubs were sort of kind of, maybe the feeder clubs were sort of almost, if, if you call them like that, were sort of heading towards the times in, in sort of unsuccessful times. And and there was a lot of fuss made, far more fuss than, than has been made, frankly, about the potential conflict of interest, for example, for, for a Man United stroke PSG ownership. And I, I think that that's been telling. I think the other thing that is worth remembering is that I think a lot of United fans, I thought, would be jumping up and down about Jim Ratcliffe, who's who says he's a Man United fan, who wants to restore the club to former glories. And I think that they would be... I thought they would be embracing that. But my general feel is I think there's still... I'm not sure which, which they'd prefer because I feel that there's an element of some United fans suddenly thinking, well, actually, the Qatari money is different level money and would make us compete... And would make us so successful on the pitch, and would be able, we'd be able to catch up with the signings of Manchester City, PSG, whoever it might be, and and they'd make us the super club again. And I I, I do look back. Also, the other element is is on the World Cup, and you know I was in Qatar, and and. In many ways, it was a good tournament, spectacular football tournament, one city tournament, which I I love that aspect. And I'm I'm still convinced that will turn in some guys or other, whether that's right or not, I don't know. But if you were there, I think you enjoyed it from that element. But I cannot help but thinking they've got away with it. Mission accomplished. Because that was, it feels like the ultimate sports wash because they've suddenly made Qatar acceptable into football because the people are not screaming and shouting about that potential Man United ownership. They're not saying what, what about our LGBTQ fan base. They're not saying about how repressive that regime is and how difficult that regime is. You know, I was so disappointed to see certain people come back from Qatar saying, oh yeah, I'm, it was a good tournament, well run, and I'm convinced there's progress gonna be on. Really? I just can't believe that, that you know, people were so happy to and easy to swallow that line. I just, I didn't see that at all. Yes, I enjoyed the football. Yes, I enjoyed the one city element, as I say. But my word, there was far, the, the negatives far outweighed the positives for me. And I just feel that the the moment in time for Man United and the Qatari ownership says to me that that was mission accomplished at the World Cup because I think United fans, I, I think largely would 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 embrace the mega signings because even if it comes with Qatari ownership.
3: I mean, the whole yeah, point of sports washing is that sports washing works, right? Yeah. Everyone everyone came away from Russia 2018 talking about the greatest World Cup, the greatest experience, and that's just what happens.
1: Well, Gianni Infantino did. Let's not say everyone did. <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, no, true, but a lot of people did. You know, Obviously, we we are, we're well involved in the media, and I know a lot of journalists and broadcasters who came back speaking glowingly about a great experience because, because it was for a lot of people. I mean, I wasn't there, so I can't speak for myself, but, you know, so many people were embraced. The tournament was incredibly well-organised, but that's what you get when you get authoritarian leadership. Mm. Did you think, though, Tony, it's, it's almost inevitable
1: that United fans, you know, following on from those of, of Newcastle and Manchester City, should be so protective of the club's right to choose its own destiny?
3: hundred percent. It's absolutely not surprising at all. You know, as we kind of alluded to already, they they have every right to see any prospective new owners as more than welcome if it spells the end of kind of the glazers and the end of the spell and they've been under the Wicked Witch of the West for so long. United is a a club that has a huge and passionate fan base locally as well as globally, despite what people will tell you. Um, And if the narrative they're hearing includes kind of development of Old Trafford and the training ground, investment in the playing squad, engagement with the local area and communities it's only natural they might turn a blind eye to the ultimate source of that money. And as you say, any, any criticism of that by anyone who stood by and enabled or allowed or said nothing when Abu Dhabi took over Man City and Saudi Arabia have taken over Newcastle can, will only be seen as hypocritical really. Mm. John, you know,
1: there's an obvious emotional, almost romantic element to Newcastle reaching Wembley. You know, they're looking for their first trophy in 68 years. Is that, air romance still valid? Because it is a different project now, isn't it? It, 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 is,
2: it is a difficult one. And, you know, I'm, I'm friendly with a few Newcastle fans and, and, I mean, the excitement levels is just beyond belief. And, look, what I would say is I think for them it is. And they've separated the two. And I think the vast majority of Newcastle fans have managed to separate the two and say... We're enjoying the time of our lives. Eddie Howe is, is amazing and this could be our first trophy for so many years and all oh, the Tell Me ma we're going to, going, going to Wembley songs and and, that. and we're going to enjoy that sort of romance and down Wembley Way it'll be a sea of black and white, I'm sure. Hopefully black and white. And I just, I, you know, but I think the rest of us will, will look on and say, mm, yeah, but... What about the you know, what about the Saudi ownership, and that's the reality. I think I think that Newcastle fans are enjoying the ride, but I do think the rest of and it's not just jealousy. and It's not just the bitter biased media. It really isn't. It's all the politics and all the all the other stuff that goes with it. And you can't. I don't think at this point in time escape it. Listen, I'm a bit of a old romantic when it comes to football finals, and I, I'm I'm someone that's really passionate about the League Cup and the, and and the Carabao Cup. And it's, it's so, I think it's so important to football and the football world for the EFL clubs to the EFL as a competition that they run and they host. And I think it's fantastic that you've got this glamorous final between the two, two clubs that really proves its worth and how much it means. But I can't help but feeling that I'll, I'll be thinking, well, it's not quite Newcastle as we know it, is it? Mm.
1: Uh, But what we have, well, in prospect anyway, at least, Tony, is the ultimate redemption story. Loris Karius, uh, if you're a
3: Newcastle fan, what do you expect? I think you hope rather than expect, don't you? I mean, obviously, I've seen a lot of Karius over the years following Liverpool, but um, it's all too easy to forget with him that he was the goalkeeper through that Champions League run that ended in a final. He made notable important saves and was an important part of that team all the way there obviously that the final itself ended in disaster and things just haven't gone well for him since but you know he's not a veteran he's not he's not a kid he's, he's got decent experience and like you say there's there, there is a, there is an ultimate redemption story there he's not he wouldn't be the first goalkeeper to come in from the cold to, to produce heroics in a, in a cup final. I remember Les Seely. I'm old enough as are both of you <laughs> easily old enough to remember Les Seely in 1990 Guilty <laughs> my <love>. lad <laughs> um, So it's more than possible it, it is a great story also just on, on the romance thing I'm sure when we're watching an interview with a kind of 85 year old Newcastle fan who was at Wembley in 1955 when when they won the FA Cup I'm sure we'll all be feeling a, a touch of romance around it as well It's not it's not his fault that the club is now owned by who they're owned by so yeah, it, it could be fascinating. I mean, the, the kind of the arguments around Nick Pope, whether he, whether he should play, whether his suspension should be kind of lifted or not, is obviously complete nonsense. I mean, the irony there is that if you want Nick Pope's suspension to be in the competition that he got sent off in, then by that token, Bruno Guimaraes misses the final, and he's arguably even more important because without him in the last in recent games, Newcastle's creativity has kind of dropped a little bit. They'll desperately need him back for this game, I think, if they're to have a chance.
1: Mm. There is a sense, also, John, isn't there? That as far as United are concerned, there's a the plan is coming together. You've seen Jaden Sancho is probably the most topical example of Ten Hag's influence. Marcus Rashford's been a revelation.
2: Yeah, I, I do. I, listen, I wondered at the time because Jaden Sancho and Eric Ten Hag being quite so outspoken about Sancho's off the field issues came during the World Cup and when he first mooted it really saying that he's not in the the condition to train I must say I questioned that I questioned his man management on that to go public and almost call out the player but sort of make it quite so public and I wondered about the logic on that because I think that the mental health of players is something we massively underestimate and I think that is something that we're not you know we don't in the media generally, I don't think take seriously enough and take enough care over. And I thought, I wonder whether that's a big call. And I guess the overall issue is probably one still for debate. But ultimately, he's handled that so well in the way that it's panned out because he's eased him back in. Yes, I suppose at one stage, he maybe had to say, give a reason as to why Sancho had a continued absence. He was searingly honest about it. But he's managed to you know, bring back a player from the cold who seems so far off it that basically you wondered whether he actually had a future at the club, to be honest. Certainly I did in December. What, a few weeks later, he's now making a really important contribution to the team, either to start or from the bench, making goals, assists, and he's making a huge impact. And that's really clever clever man management. As for Rashford, well, I say here now, I just feel... In the conversation that we'll have at the end of the season about Player of the Year, Marcus Rashford, even if Man United only win, only I say win the Carabao Cup, I think Marcus Rashford has to be in the conversation for Player of the Year, even if Man City win it and 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 you know Haaland wins sort of the golden boot and scores 50 goals or Arsenal win it. And Odegaard is their standout plan. Marcus Rashford has to be in the conversation. He's been that good. He's been that sensational and dynamic and influential for Man United, particularly after the World Cup. His, his goal celebration, to me, tells me, I think we're still wondering quite what it means, but to me it says, I'm focused, I'm in the zone, I'm in the moment. And my word, he's in the moment. Yes, I know there's a contract conversation to be, to be had and players often play (laughs) in incredible form incredible shape just before getting, you know, when when contract negotiations are going on. But it's more than that. It's what he brings to the team. And, you know, that again owes so much, I think, to Ten Hag and his clever use of the players. Mm. Right. Well, you know, I apologise
1: in advance for this, Tony, but we're going to have to address Liverpool in the wake of that 5-2 defeat by Real Madrid you know, there's been a lot of talk about end of an era. Certainly the scale of the rebuild required was really emphasised by the nature of that defeat, wasn't it?
3: <sighs> first of all, thanks thanks a lot for directing this question at me. Um, I'll <laughs> certainly go to John with this, but no. Yeah, it looks... I mean, in some ways, maybe this is the, the eternal optimist. Liverpool didn't play that badly last night, but I guess everything that was good in the first... I mean. I'm, I'm no, no. This is no great insight to say this. So the first twenty minutes was everything that, that has been right about Liverpool in the Jurgen Klopp era: intensity, pace, quality on the ball, ruthlessness in front of goal. And then the last seventy is everything that has been wrong: careless in possession, exposing a fragile defence, individual mistakes, lack of energy, some awful, awful decisions by lots of individuals. They are at the moment they are too easy to play against too much of the time. And you can get away with that against a really desperate Everton team or 10-man Newcastle, but you can't get away with it against the Champions League version of this Real Madrid, who are probably the most ruthless opponents in football. I mean, Madrid. looking at it from Madrid's point of view. They pulled like an endless stream of rabbits out of countless hats, didn't they, to win the tournament last season. But Carlo Ancelotti and his raised eyebrow will have kind of left Anfield last night, knowing they didn't really have to do that much to do that. And that's the real tragedy of where, of, of, of where Liverpool are at the moment. I think they could probably score three in the second leg if if they if they play well and take their chances. But I mean there's absolutely no chance in hella they're keeping a clean sheet, are they? I think they would have been sent out last night with two two clear jobs, I mean lots of clear jobs, but one of them would have been stop Vinicius Jr. cutting inside and getting shots off on his on his right foot. That's the most dangerous way that Madrid play. And and don't make any calamitous mistakes. To fail at both is bad enough. To fail at both have to go and 2-0 up is just a complete disaster. And we are looking at whether the end of an era is quite quite right or not, I don't know. But we are looking at quite a lot of players who look whose form and potentially energy levels have, have fallen off a cliff in in the past. To what to be fair, from the end of last season through into this season, Fabinho, Jordan Henderson, Virgil Van Dijk clearly isn't isn't the player he once was, and whether he'll get back to that, I don't know. Joe Gomez looks fragile. You know, that defence is is too fragile to be exposed as often as they are being exposed at the moment, and teams understand that and are making this team pay. Klopp needs to answer that.
1: Yeah, well, that defence, Liverpool have conceded more than three goals in five of the 13 games since the World Cup, which tells you everything, really, doesn't it? Now, John, you were there. Firstly, what was the mood like afterwards? It must have been funereal. But that that point that, that Tony hinted at there the, of, of players slipping from their standards the big managers Shankly Ferguson Wenger they recognize
2: that don't they and they act Klopp has got to be really ruthless hasn't he he has the the one thing I would say Mike and this has surprised me somewhat in that a lot of those managers did it as an ongoing process that they were winning winning trophies while in transition and surely that is the art isn't it and that's that's the ultimate aim i guess uh, but liverpool's chances of silverware this season have all but gone they're 6 points off the pace of the top 4 and not finishing in the top 4 you know and missing out on the champions league place next season w- would be a devastating blow for that rebuild but i do feel as if it's been left to uh, almost the focus on being on one single window i.e. this summer, for the complete rebuild is too much. Yes, they tried to do, you know, some some business, more business last summer, too many, you know, sort of kind of comes to mind, sort of for midfield. But now you're suddenly looking at a complete rebuild for the midfield. Who are the survivors there? Thiago is obviously out, injured, but and has not played so much this season. Fabinho's form has fallen off a cliff. Henderson... Fabulous player, but is is showing age, and let's hope some of the younger players will will come through and realise that potential. But can you can you really bank on that? And therefore, I just feel as if they need two midfielders at least, and the and the defence just looks short of confidence, short of belief. Joe Gomez is clearly a player who who needs confidence and belief to play. He, there, there is a real talent in there, but it's it's so much of his game is about confidence, and the only one I see playing to his previous levels or anywhere near them is Andy Robertson, because Alexander Arnold is just his form has been poor this season uh, 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 as well by comparison. Whether you think that's sort of kind of you know going forward or defensively, I think a bit of both really has just not been at the previous level, and it just feels as if. I can't believe how 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 fast Liverpool have fallen. Nine months ago, they're competing with Real Madrid and could have been champions of Europe, and and, and the way that they've they've fallen off the cliff—it's <laughs> incredible, isn't it? It's just incredible. <laughs> it's, and I tell you what—I was I was at Anfield, and 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 the the, the mood afterwards—massive credit to Liverpool fans who were singing "You'll Never Walk Alone" to support the team at the final whistle, and quickly followed by "We Love You, Liverpool." and and they were there were still behind the team and Klopp and and actually I tell you what, when quite a few people begin to began to file out with five minutes to go, a large chunk of supporters turned on those that were leaving and said stay support your team and I love that love that. So, without a shadow of a doubt, the fans were on board because Klopp's built built that credit. But I do think he's he's left himself with too much to do this summer.
3: Yeah, I mean, it has has he left himself with too much to do? Has the club left themselves yeah, with too much to do? I think there are question marks about about the recruitment around him with since Mike Edwards left and whether whether that structure is working quite as it has done. Ultimately, of that of the first team squad, Tiago is the only senior midfielder who's currently out injured. Everybody else is pretty much available. And the fact is, when you're bringing on 37 year old James Milner in a Champions League knockout tie, now obviously Luka Modric is also 37, but we're talking mm-hmm. we're talking kind of all time great here, which for all his qualities, James Milner isn't. That that probably implies. I mean, obviously, I, I don't think I don't think Klopp trusts Navicato. He's probably going to leave in the summer anymore. But that does imply that the midfield isn't isn't there isn't the strength in depth in that midfield that there should be for a team challenging supposedly for all the titles going. Stefan Bajetic is an incredible talent, but he's 18 years old and he shouldn't be the, the midfielder that Liverpool are looking to to anchor themselves or provide inspiration in a Champions League knockout tie against Real Madrid. So, yeah, but ultimately, John, you're right, too much to do. Yeah, the
1: Liverpool owners, uh, FSG, say the club's not for sale, but that presumably avoids the reality that every club has its price, and I think it's significant that they could probably, well, they will be looking for minority investment so that they can fund a splurge in the transfer market. That really brings us on to Chelsea. You're basically, they're game changers in so many ways, aren't they, John? I don't like, if I'm honest, the implicit lack of respect for Graham Potter in the tone of the debate about his personality and his tactical effectiveness. But as distasteful as some of the attitudes struck are, what are the limits of, of the new owner's patience, do you think? You know, would a bad defeat at Spurs do for him?
2: No, I don't think so. I, I really passionately believe from, from all the soundings. That I get that this I wouldn't say a free pass, and you know, you've got to be realistic about this. You can't let the performance level slip further. I I of all the teams in Europe, I think that Man City maybe they'll get through to the quarterfinals. I still think Spurs will come back. I think Chelsea might well fall at the you know at the last 16 hurdle to Dortmund, having already lost the first leg. I think that will be a blow, and yet I still feel as if Potter will be given the rest of the season, and be given the window, and into next. Quite how long into next, I I I don't know. But I think they're looking at what Arsenal did with Arteta, when I think that the easy option would have been to change the manager and go. Okay, it's not working. You know, are the players responding? Arteta had some real lows where we question whether he had the players, whether he had the dressing room on side and, you know, whether the recruitment was right, which direction is the club going. They flirted with a relegation battle, if you remember, even at times. And I do feel as if there's a real strength of feeling amongst the Chelsea ownership that actually we need to give Potter time and we'll give him that. And I do feel therefore that he won't pay, pay the price, even if they were to lose badly at, at Spurs. I just don't, I don't feel that. I don't see that at the moment from 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 that ownership. My, I couldn't agree more with you. The lack of, I mean, it's ridiculous. I thought, you know, last week about they've hired Graham Potter because of his his management and ability as a manager and his calmness and his his way. I and I I so admire that. That basically he doesn't go crazy at referees. Last weekend the the FA had a massive campaign about, you know, body cam for referees and for grassroots referees to try and protect the future. Do we really want to see screaming crazy managers in the Premier League level setting the tone for the whole country, for the whole of grassroots? Or do we actually want to see a respectful manager like Graham Potter? I know which I prefer. And I think that Graham Potter was hired because of his calm demeanour, calm manner. Of course he loses his temper, I'm sure, with players behind the scenes. But actually... If he, can, if he can act with dignity in front of the cameras, then, then I'm all for that. And I, I, I don't feel as if Potter is being taken seriously in some courts, And I think that's really sad. And I have to question the reasons behind that. And I actually don't, don't particularly know, but I massively want Potter to succeed because I think what he offers as a shining path for young British managers is unmistakable. John, I've got two, two questions
3: on that kind of likeness uh, or the, kind of the comparison to Arteta. One is, I don't remember Arteta ever suffering with the fans quite to the extent that Potter already has. And two, and again, I might be wrong, but it feels like from the start, no matter how slow the progress was, Arteta was allowed to build his squad and bring in his players and build something that felt like, his project and actually one of the problems they may face this this season is that their their squad's too too small they don't have enough depth because this is a kind of slow motion process getting towards exactly the kind of squad that Arteta wants and it doesn't feel like I mean Chelsea's squad is now so big with so many players on vast contracts very long contracts who will expect to play it doesn't feel like a Graham Potter kind of project which makes me worry for him
2: Yeah, look, I I do see what you mean about Arteta. I do think there were bad defeats, home defeats behind closed doors. And I think if a crowd had been in there, you know, the crowd have taken them rightly so, so much credit for for their part in this season and what's gone right for Arsenal because they've been behind it. But I do feel as if I think there would have been a greater momentum. But I think as it was, I think a lot of fans were doing it almost remotely. And and there is a tendency, isn't there, to say, oh well, you're not at the games, and they weren't at the games. You know, you're not yeah, gun yeah, fan, yeah, yeah. and they weren't at the game. But I do think there was a pressure there, and Arsenal deserved massive credit for sticking with him because I do think there, there was a big part of the fan base that was going, this isn't working, time to change. It's pretty suffocating at the moment with with Potter, and and I have to say, I'm with you, Tony. In the basically, sometimes I think, can you win that fan base round? I don't know how many managers have been able to do it. I think that Fergie actually did it around what oh six oh seven that sort of period where basically United fans were going you know is he is he lost it is he still the same and he he came again and won more Premier League titles and but I don't know that there's that many that can do it from that because once you lose the fans you've lost it is my general rule of thumb and I do I do worry for for Potter whether he can win the fans back because. This is a fan base that's been used to sort of kind of revolving door policy on managers and, and trophies, and it works. And they're not they're not having this guy, are they? That's the problem. Yeah, it is. Aston Villa, meanwhile, are one of the clubs willing to spend on
1: upward mobility in the initial form of European qualification, at least. Responsibility for that falls on Unai Emery. He's at the vanguard of a generation of Basque coaches, I found him in thoughtful and insightful mood. Unai, welcome and thanks for your time. When Mikel Arteta was on the podcast, he spoke of how important the Basque culture was to him. Hard work, family, community... Do you have that same
4: influence on you as well? Yes, of course. Uh, we have to be proud of our, our country, Spain and Basque country, because uh, I grew up there and I am very proud of my mother and my father. I think the best quality of the, the Basque people is responsibility and hard work.
1: Because your father, your grandfather, your uncle played. You were playing football as a boy. You were in the streets and then made the first team at Real Sociedad. And even your family now own Real Union, you know, one of the original
4: La Liga clubs. Uh, the game must be in your blood. Yes, Real Union is, is my, my grandfather club. He was a goalkeeper and he was the first goalkeeper in Spain in the liga, saved the first goal as a goalkeeper against Espanol de Barcelona. I was very proud of him and of course my father, my uncle, they were playing as well as a goalkeeper and as a player. And they showed me the way and they showed me my passion and my love for football. And of course for my country and for my where I am coming. Where why my past family being success as well in football world, and I tried to keep going there, the first way they did, and I'm so proud of them. Mm. The
1: name Unai, in Basque language, means shepherd. You're looking after your flock. As you were growing up, were you always going to be a coach? <laughs>
4: I love football. I feel passion for football. And of course, when I was playing, I enjoyed a lot. But uh, in my mind, always was to keep football in my everyday. And after, as a player, I quickly changed my mind to be a coach. And I had the opportunity in Lorca, when I finished my career as a player, I started as a coach the next day. I tried to enjoy, I tried to be competitive, I tried to win, I tried to, to continue my passion. And it's the reason I, now I'm here, because I love football. Mm.
1: A great teacher in the Basque region, he looked after you as a, when you were a boy or coming through, uh, Mikel Achary. What did he teach you about the game? And he said he thought you would be a top coach because you were a rebel. <laughs>
4: He is, and he was tactically amazing. He was the first coach. He showed me something about tactic, understand about football, not only play with one ball, it's understand to connect with uh, your teammate, to know the opposite, how they are playing, and try to take decision on the pitch. And he coached me as a player, and then I was in contact with him, a lot communication with him to try to help to support me uh, as a coach. Now, mm-hmm. Do you still speak to him? Yes, 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 mm-hmm. yes. Right. And uh, Sunday we are meeting uh, as well in San Sebastian in on in my in my town. We are we are. He's coming to watch Real Union matches, and when I can watch a match, I am going. I am trying to be with him because we are speaking about the all circumstances tactically. They are we are watching the, in each match.
1: Yeah, the region produces great coaches. You know, I spoke about Mikel Arteta, Andoni Iraola, Yulan Lopetegui, Javier Alonso, and then go, you go back to Clemente and uh, Iroeta with Depo. Why? Why so many coaches coming from the Basque region?
4: Really, we are so identified with uh, our country, our football. I grew up with Real Sociedad winning the league in 1980 and 1981, and we are very proud of where we are. And I think I grew up, and of course, Arteta is younger than me but his father was my coach. His father was Perico so he played in Real Sociedad in Barcelona when they won the league. And I think everything about Real Sociedad, around Real Sociedad, that is the reason. Because uh, we are very involved being part of Real Sociedad in this area.
1: Mm. Because when yeah, I've been to both Sociedad and also to Athletic Bilbao, the cantera is very important. The families will gather, and, and you know the grandfather will take the, the grandson to games. Is that something in England that we lack? Do you think?
4: But I think uh, the north of Spain, San Sebastian, Bilbao, Basque Country, we are a little bit like Europe, and uh, we are a little bit uh, like uh, England about. Uh, our lighthouse is, is running more than the south of Spain. The weather is is changing and is a little similar than, than England. And we are so proud of our teams, like in England. Mm. We have passion, but we love our town. We love our club in this town, in this country. And we are so proud of Real Sociedad, Little Bowl, Alaves, Osasuna. And I, I think uh, I can share my point of, of view with uh, the teams there, like here in, in England. And that is, I think, uh, football uh, for us as well is very important. When I was meeting, gathering with my friends in my town, we were speaking always football, 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 football. Someone is not playing football, but speaking about football and being proud of of uh, Real Sociedad of Red wow, we were speaking about it. And that is, I think, uh, the passion and a little bit like England, I felt.
1: What do you think is the difference in coaching in La Liga and the Premier League? What are the differences in the styles?
4: Mm, the football is the same in, in, uh, in the World War, but the characteristic or the idea with the culture, it's being different maybe in different countries, and for example, I love a lot Portuguese coaches. They are tactically amazing, and I think we are coaches in Spain or maybe in the Basque Country as well, like like Lopetegui, uh, like Arteta, like uh, Il Aula. We were as well humble mm. to add another coaches for another countries to oh they are doing it they are working like that they are being tactically very good and we are trying to keep for us as well yeah. and we are travelling more we are being more going away and i think when we are arriving here to england we are first trying to respect here the culture the football the passion everything around football, and we are then adding our experiences, our tactical different ways we work it or we, we learn, and trying to do it here. But at the beginning, being respectful of them.
1: So you are students of the game. You go and look and see other cultures. But what about natural things like the intensity of the game? I know in the Premier League, it is multinational. Your squad is multinational. But the English players have a special mentality.
4: First, here the football is different. It's the speed and is the intensity. Everything is around run, 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 and to fight, to fight, to fight to fight. And I think we are coming from another country maybe, trying to, because I told here the players. I am telling as well, repeating them. I want to add here my experiences, but of course I want to keep your intensity, your passion, your feels. I don't want to lose it. I want to share with you and I want to add only my organization about how we can control, how we can take our time, how we can use your speed, your passion, your intensity. And that is the mix I want to do here. You know, you are known as an analytical coach. Paco, your assistant, is
1: saying. How long does it take you as a group of people to put your
4: game plan together? First is I review my last match I played. Analysis our match, analyze our player individually, collectively, and be very demanding analyzing, taking time. Maybe the match is one hour and, and 30, and I need five times more to analyze good our team. Maybe 10 hours, 10, 18, 10 hours. Then I have my coaches analyzing the rival, the opposite, and they are giving me Deducing their strategy or their qualities and skills, and I analyze as well. uh, Taking my time, uh, I need maybe two days, five, six or eight hours, and then I try to use everything with the players. But I am very demanding first in analysis in uh, our matches. Then they respect the opposite and try to analyze the opposite, and then try to give the players, reducing, of course, mm-hmm. the information, but trying to be clinical in the right uh, way tactically to play. Mm-hmm. Is it fair, do you think, to say that some of your
1: best work as a coach has been done without a big budget? You know, you think of, I don't know, Valencia, where you you ended up selling Juan Mata, David Silva, David Villa. Is that because you can get more out of a player on the grass, on the training
4: pitch? But uh, in this way, is when I can learn more. Because we have to be clinical after sell players 30, 40 million, okay and we can buy players 10 million, 15 million, 20 million. And that develop with the player you are selling, the player you are buying. But the player you are buying have to improve with them to take the same object and target. What is the amazing work I've never been. I am so proud of that's the way I learn. Because for me, it's one experiences every year improving, being demanding, only I have one moment was in PSG when we didn't sell and we only bought players, Neymar and Mbappé, and was the moment, okay, 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 <laughs> I have here the players with the budget, and I was as well learning a lot because it was different coaching, was different process with the players. Yeah. But, of course, was amazing as well. I like both, both sides. But, of course, when you are with less budget and we, you have to get the same result, the same objective, it's been, individually, myself, is has been more for be proud of it. Mm. What have you learned from English football? Yeah. If we can just
1: take your first spell at Arsenal, what did you learn about... Not just the game, but the culture of, not just even English football, but England in general.
4: I learned each match is very difficult because you can't let one minute in 90 because everything they have, good players, and everything in their town, their stadium with their supporters was amazing the atmosphere supporting, pushing, and they play really being together and the connection with each team with their supporter in their stadium is amazing. To adapt and to control the matches in that atmosphere with the crowd was woof, the first feel I had mm. yeah, and I am as well feeling now is uh, is the you smell it. Football, 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 football. He's here smelling football.
1: What was attractive about Aston Villa when you were approached here?
4: First is historically. And now how we can add again a new way getting close than he, it was won titles, won champion League in 80, 1982. Of course in Birmingham, the second city in, in UK, uh, the support they, they have and historically Aston Villa was in the top 10 historically and now we want to get again the present with them. And that is my challenge to try to add, to try to help with my experiences, with my coaching before, now with the player here. And that is the the only they explain me. They are with the same, in the same move with us, with me, and try to do again with Aston Villa, to get it in the same position historically they were. Mm. It's a process.
1: Yeah. How long will it take for the true Unai Emery team to develop and emerge here?
4: As soon as possible. (laughs) (laughs) But um, the football, usually the process are short because not passion to get the objective you you can face. And um, be patient. First, myself is important now and try to do one process. Of course, I don't want to get a lot of years to achieve it because I want to enjoy each moment. I want to work as soon as possible, developing. But I have to be aware about in good balance, the time we, we will need. And I am happy because at the beginning, we were in the bottom and we are developing now, and we are getting, being near the top 10. And this is the first step. In four months, we are getting, we are 11 in the table, but we are, with two good results, we are in the top 10. And that is the first step. I think we, we have to stop speaking about the steps. Yeah. <laughs> and we can add, then we are in the top 10. We can think maybe for the European position. Okay, so a final question.
1: What will a successful Aston Villa team look like? How will it play? Will there be more new players coming in that you'd need to bet in? People that you're looking at now?
4: Will this be a year's time or how long? At the beginning is to try to develop and try to improve with the project we have now. High level of them. It's the first. First, we have really good players. They are not being successful being in good performance before because the football is like that. But the first step is try to improve the player we have. Then adding players, being experienced, being success in their career, and trying as well to help us here. That is the step process I want to do. And then of course, to try to be consistent, to try to be tactically better, to try to play in one style idea being firm in this way. And that is the process I want to do. And I am analyzing every day. I am taking exams myself with the only, with the support, with the media. But of course, I am being very demanding with my players as well, taking exams of them. I analyzing their performances. And this is... Because when we are speaking about the football it's very difficult. It's because to take the right decision, a strong decision, be deep analysis of them, that is the process, and that's the difficult process, and be clinical at the end. Thank you for. Your time. Thank you.
1: So Tony, I found that a fascinating insight into the culture that produces so many Basque coaches. It's also intriguing, I thought, that he, he mentioned learning from Portuguese coaches. What sort of example is he setting?
3: Yeah, he's. I mean, I've, I, first and foremost, I actually love listening to him. I, he's, he's just such a likeable guy. I think he was probably maybe right guy at the wrong time at Arsenal or wrong guy at the right time, whichever way you look at it. Um, I think the fit with Villa is, feels quite natural. The work he's done with VRL in between is just sensational. The Basque coaches is really interesting. I mean, I think I've been, been to that area a couple of times. They are very, I mean, I'm generalising wildly, but it's a very proud area of Spain. They, they love where they're from. They love their towns. They love their teams. They love their region. And they're, they're proud of their football. What's really interesting, I think he spoke about this a little bit. We have the same thing here in England, actually. He kind of noticed that same kind of pride in our football. But I think the traditional identity of English football which, as Unai Emery says, is kind of fast, physical, relentless fighting for everything. That's fine, but the game has has moved on slightly. It's it's now the focus is now more technical, and more tactical, which I think aligns a lot more with the kind of football you see from that region. Uh, the best teams still have that kind of fight, don't they? But actually, they also have the most tactically astute coaches with more analytical minds, and I think that is what that region produces. Obviously. People like Juno Lopetegui, Javi Gracia, who's now at Leeds, is also from that region. Andoni Araula, who was also linked with a move to the Premier League. And the, the Portuguese thing is really interesting as well. Obviously, there's a lot of Portuguese coaches in the game at the moment, Jose Mourinho being the most prominent and famous one. But what's interesting is, that, again, this move towards a more tactical focus, tactical periodization, which is a kind of an idea that's come out of Portugal in recent years. This idea that kind of you structure your kind of training both tactical and physical in a very certain way across the week to kind of maximise the outputs at the end of it. It sounds quite scientific and it is, but that's come out of Portugal. Coaches like Jose Mourinho stand by that. Nuno Espirito Santos has done it. Pep Leinders at Liverpool is, is a big advocate of it. He worked with worked at Porto for many years. So it kind of stands to reason that this kind of more insightful, analytical approach appeals to someone like Emery. Really interesting, really interesting guy, really interesting interview. And I, for one, hope he does a really good job at Villa.
1: Yeah, he he spoke, John, of, of, of smelling English football. Did you get the sense that, you know, as Tony said, he was the right man at the wrong time, i.e. the post-Wenger era at Arsenal? And did he get
2: a raw deal there? Yeah, I do think he did, particularly when you consider that he was one win or one result away from top four and basically Champions League football and one... Nightmare performance in the Europa League final, which would have been a, brought a European trophy and Champions League football. So you know you can't say that the Martins weren't close, and it did feel as if it was a bad run when he got the sack, basically. But it it escalated rather quickly, and I don't think the language issue helped him. I'll be I'll be perfectly honest. And Mike, it was really interesting in there. And I think pe- people need to be realistic about it in that his English has improved no end, hasn't it, in that. And and I actually listened to that, and I, that's what hit me first. It was a fascinating listen, but he was getting his point across perfectly. And I think that there was a bit of, you know, backlash against the media when when he lost his job at Arsenal, so no kind of, you know, about taking the mickey out of out of his language. And he's got an incredibly strong accent. You know, coming from that from that particular area, but that all all that good evening stuff yeah. was so crass. It was, it was ridiculous. It stuff. was looking back. It horrible. was it was too much. And then basically, there is some horrible sort of social media stuff where Arsenal fans have seen him since and then ridiculed. And it's it was it was too much. And at first, he actually sort of kind of laughed along with it and it was gracious gracious about it. But I, I always remember his unveiling at the club. His English was really difficult it was but he quickly improved but then he insisted on doing the main press conference in English and he was concentrating hard and it was okay and then we went upstairs and to do a separate interview for the the newspapers if you like and basically did it through a translator and he was so much more expansive and so his his you know his sayings and his phraseology was so much better it is not about him and what he said in the media for me it was about an issue which became bigger for Emery on the training ground when you literally had players laughing about it and ridiculing it. And that was a reality, really. Clearly, that's not going to happen at Aston Villa. He's moved on a lot since then. I loved his detail and the the hours spent analysing games post-match and just how, how much work he and his assistants put into games. You can see it on the pitch, can't you? You can see it. You know, they're so well organised, so hard, so much harder to break down. He's got some good players there, but he also talks about the need to rebuild and sort of kind of filter the squad. I loved his ambition. You know, he mentioned, yes, it's 40 years since Villa won the European Cup. <laughs> Villa fans won't be reminding of that, but basically he was determined to get, you know, to get them back on that, that sort of level. And, and where do we put Villa? Well, we have to compare them to what he's done at clubs in Spain, don't we? In that basically he has taken clubs from a similar level with, with, with a history and with, and with grandeur and then basically raised, raised them up and improved their levels, built clubs, built won European titles and therefore then got into, into the Champions League. And frankly, that's clearly his ambition here at Aston Villa. I think the one key aspect is he's going to take time. And to to rebalance that squad, because the squad looks imbalanced to me. And I think it will take time and it will need patience. And I think it might even be a rebuild that goes into well into next season and only the following season do we reap the the, the benefits of that. But I do think there's a man there with a a very clear plan.
1: Mm, Yeah, I did get the sense that there is an impatience in him beyond the dignity and, and, and... I just feel that he wants to get stuff done really quickly. So I can see Europe being a realistic ambition maybe next season. That work ethic, Tony, that again is another Basque characteristic, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is. Um, I've got an anecdote about him actually. We, we at the coach's voice, obviously we're probably most renowned for the kind of masterclass features that we do where we get coaches on the tactics board talking about kind of some of the, some of the biggest games. And we spent some time with Emery, I think before he took the VRL job, I wasn't there. as well. One of our Spanish guys was out there doing it with him, and he did. We got him to do severe beating Liverpool, beating Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool in the in the Europa League final, which was one of his one of his greatest wins. But and we we didn't film this so much. But he also then carried went on to speak at length about the Europa League final for Arsenal against Chelsea that John referred to earlier, and he gave our guy as much tactical insight into that game, talked as openly about that game as he did the victory. And I think that just underlines. Of his willingness to, you know, analyse defeat as well as you know, all coaches tell us you learn much more from the defeats than you do from the victories, and this is a guy who obviously had thought a lot about that game. I mean, for many obvious reasons. But what was interesting was that he spoke at length about the tactics going into the game, what he thought would happen, why it didn't, and then why it didn't happen and how he reacted in the game. Now it it didn't work. Obviously, it was it was a terrible result. But I thought it was just fascinating to hear that this guy was just so intense on learning and developing and thinking about the game. I mean, like John alluded to in that chat, you had eight to 10 hours to analyse the last game, two days to analyse the opposition. I mean, this is a guy, you've got to live and breathe football to do that. I love the passion. Mm.
1: Most immediately, John, Villera, Goodison on Saturday. Do you see the Dice effect in full swing
2: there? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I just... Um... I've got so much admiration for Sean Dash. I mean, you know, he took a bit of stick after after Liverpool, and I was thinking, seriously, do you really expect them to kind of easily just he, he just pick up with him two weeks, then go and and win at Liverpool? And and he made his mark first game out, didn't he, with Arsenal? And I, I'd be interested to know what Tony thought about this sort of kind of the you know, the talk around the bleep test, because much was made of that. And people just reported it, actually, and said, oh, you know, good to see Sean Dyche kind of straight in with the Sean Dyche thing, the bleep test. Well, I don't know that they were being critical. There was just some, a statement of fact. And then I was kind of watching the watching. I think the, sort of, the, the game on, on BT, it was, wasn't it? Again, Everton Arsenal. Think, I think people immediately assumed that that was a negative sort of thing. And I didn't see it like that at all, really. It's just what... Sean Dyche wants. He basically, I don't think it's negative to say that he sticks to what he knows and he gets results from that. They're incredibly well organised, incredibly well drilled. He's got the blessing of a few really good players in there that are kind of really digging deep. I mean, blimey, the goal. Seamus Coleman, for example, scores. I mean, if there's one player that you think, well, I can really rely on on this guy, you know, arguably their best ever value signing, it's just astonishing. Anana Arna looks excellent, and they've got they've got heart and character and courage within that dressing room. And I think that without a shadow of a doubt, I think Daesh has basically led Everton away from being almost amongst Southampton as who view as relegation certainties into a team that will quickly, I think, disappear from the choice of most people's bottom three to go down, really. Because I just think he's brought an organisation and a pride to the team. Again, I think that will get them results. It could even get them a result against Villa. But I have to say, after Villa have lost three in a row, particularly cruel the last one against Arsenal, I, I would expect some sort of reaction from Villa. So... I don't know whether the, the Everton can actually kind of build and get another win yet.
1: Mm. Well, I, I must admit, I was I was amazed, frankly, that it took so long for uh, Sean Dyche to get back in the game. You know, there's some of the sniffy attitudes towards him just defied logic. But speaking of that, I'm also amazed, Tony, uh, that, you know, we, we look at modern football and all the professional expertise in it. Uh, Leeds is a case in point here. You get rid of your manager without any succession plan whatsoever, and on Tuesday afternoon they've been scrambling around, and you know Javi Garcia was was appointed on what was termed a flexible contract. I'm I'm assuming that that's keep him up, and he keeps his job.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, have, having been at Watford, uh, where every manager's on an official flexible contract, so I'm sure Garcia <laughs> will not have been put off by that. I mean, the issue with Lee, I mean. You talk about kind of succession plans. Again, we, we always end up, talk- pretty much every time I appear on this, we end up talking about Brighton somehow. You know, when, when Graham Potter left, it wasn't just that Deserby was was somebody they'd looked at. It was somebody they'd identified him ages ago. There was a contingency plan in place for ages. Deserby was the only person they interviewed, as far as I know. They knew exactly who their man was and they went out and got him. And I'm sure if Deserby had turned him down, there'd have been somebody else that he went to talk to. Leeds definitely had all their eggs in the in the Jesse Marsh basket. They really didn't want to get rid of him. And again, this is where we come back to Graham Potter with Chelsea. Now they really only did get rid of him because the fans had absolutely gone. It was getting towards toxic. Kind of a shame that Southampton haven't didn't appoint him because him going back to Leeds would have so early would have been a, <laughs> a lot of fun to watch. But as as for Gracia, um, you know he did he lasted longer than most at Watford. You know they kind of their form. The, the, the one full season he did there ended with a cup final which actually ended up probably being a bit of a distraction they fell off a cliff a bit towards the end of the season in the league which meant they didn't finish top half which they probably should have done that form carried on into the, into the following season but you know he had he had, a, he had a Watford team that had a fair amount of talent in it Decore and Capoue were, were in the midfield Troy Dini up front Pereira and Delafeu were kind of you know, flair players around them so they had you know they probably had he probably had the best Watford squad of, of this current era, I think. He did pretty well with them. This Leeds team is not without talent. They're not without pace. They've got enough to stay up. The question is just whether he can have enough of an organizational impact so early on, turn the morale around and get them get them going. It feels like there's been a bit of progress with the work that Michael Scoobell has done since Jesse Marsh left, but you know, as John said, with Everton, probably likely to to disappear off into the distance. Somebody has to fill the place that looked like it was going to be theirs and the moment Lee's look, they are like, oh, they're a pretty good candidate for that, aren't
1: they? Yeah, well, certainly the, the visit of Southampton is critically timed. To use that well-worn cliche, John, we've got another six-pointer, relegation six-pointer, Forrest at West Ham. It's quite strange. I did, I did the interview with David Moyes last week and he, he sounded quite sanguine about things, but you look around now and almost everyone's got a distinctive take on whether David Moyes is going to survive this. Some people are saying he's gone if he loses at the weekend. Others are saying that the club are going to stick with him. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's
2: really interesting. I mean, I have to say, I, I, I'm, I enjoy the, the times at very much and I sort of kind of, you know, it's always quite, how can I put this sort of quite conservative in its, its reporting and approach. But, yeah, it was basically it was the Times version of a win or bust story. by, by, by you know Gary Jacobs, terrific reporter, Palamine, and sort of you know is on is on the money, and basically said it, it, you know Moyes will be sacked if he fails Forest test. If he can't beat Forest, Moyes will pay with, with with his job. And look, I I tend to think that's as probably that's probably true. I think that Moyes has done a really really good job. At west ham overall i think the ownership then recognized that and have been absolutely determined to stick with him i remember doing a game over the sort of kind of christmas new year period i think when they lost at home to, to to brentford and i think the fans were a bit edgy then and Moyes was in complete denial and basically said we played really well didn't deserve to lose and the fans stuck with us and I think it's been an element with David in that basically I think he's not really wanted to kind of face up and see that things needed changing. And, and yeah. I've got so much admiration for Moyes. I think Moyes is a terrific football manager and uh, and he's really, really good. And I think he's he's been excellent. The best manager West Ham have had in years, in my view. And this season has not gone to plan. But I think in credit to the owners... They clearly recognise what he's done in the past and not want to make that change. And I think if they do do it, and I'm probably with Gary in his report, that it feels like a massive weekend for David Moyes because they're not playing well. It's very negative. It's really quite frustrating to watch. They have backed him in the market a bit and the performances have have dropped, dropped off. I think there's got to be an element of Declan Rice in this. I do think that Declan Rice is so unusual to hear a player, their star player, you know, wearing the captain's armband mid-season as he did in the World Cup, saying, "I'm going to leave," which is what he did at an England press conference. He's their he's their best player in my view by by some distance, and he's done that mid-season. That normally happens in May time when the player says, "Look, you know, I've given my all, but basically I want to go and play Champions League football." And I just think when you when you've got players like that, it's very difficult to kind of, you know, then have a dressing room that is pulling all in the same direction. I think we all admire Declan Rice and and sort of as a personality and as a player, but most unusual set of circumstances that you've got the leader saying, I probably want out at the end of the season. And to be honest, probably doesn't help the manager.
1: Yeah, well, as we've discussed today, the football world is shifting on its axis. I can't pretend to like the way the game's going, more and more I find myself searching for reasons to believe in its humanity. That can be found everywhere, including in the most tragic circumstances. Newcastle's Wembley appearance will be especially poignant due to the death of former player Christian Atsu in the Turkish earthquake. Thanks to Mark Douglas, respected northeast journalist, I learned that he set up a charity for abandoned, orphaned and trafficked children. He donated thousands of pounds to help the destitute in Ghana with little or no publicity. As Mark said, an excellent footballer, but an even better man. May he rest in peace. I'm grateful to John and Tony for sharing their experience and expertise, and to Unai Emery, who's most definitely one of the good guys.